From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. We knew this college football season would be unlike any other, and that's certainly proven true at an early juncture for the Gators. Following their loss to Texas A&M, the football program suffered a COVID outbreak that caused the team to pause all activities and delayed both the LSU and Missouri games. On today's show, we'll chat with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry about the latest developments from inside the football program, the opening of practice for basketball, and much more. Then, we'll open up our Gator Greats vault and share a never-before-heard portion of our interview with national champion quarterback Chris Leak. But first, we know you're curious what's happening within the football program as they try to get their outbreak under control. And there's no one better to do that than Scott Carter, who is currently quarantining himself due to his close proximity to the team and potential exposure. Well, it's been an unprecedented week, and we've had a few of those already in 2020, Adam. And uh, obviously, we saw it unfold in a different way for the Gators last week. You know, after the Texas A&M trip, some guys that Sunday uh, started reporting symptoms to uh, Paul Silvestri, the team trainer. And, you know, by Monday morning, he had contacted Scott Strickland and Dan Mullen and said, here's what's going on. And uh, so they kind of got wind of maybe some guys were sick. And uh, by Tuesday, it was in serious mode. And by Wednesday, you know, Scott Strickland's having the press conference that's saying, the football program is shut down with 21 positives on the team. And they've continued. It's it, Luckily, in the days since, you know, here we are a week later, they've had more positives. Dan Mullen said uh, on Wednesday uh, of this week on his SEC teleconference, they had another positive this morning. So it's slowing down. But until they get no positives, obviously they're not going to feel comfortable. So right now they're going to be shut down through at least the October 26th. That's when the facilities will officially reopen and team organization will pick back up. Will all guys be there? I don't think so. I mean, you're still going to have some guys quarantined. Uh, you're going to have some guys uh, still maybe uh, going through testing protocols. Uh, but what they're hoping is they'll have enough guys to, to reach that 53-player minimum that the SEC has to play Missouri and they'll have a full week of practice next week. And, uh, you know, it's going from walk-ons all the way up to the head coach. I mean, Dan Mullen announced on Saturday right before the uh, Georgia-Alabama uh, game, uh, Dan Mullen was in the news cycle there when he posted on Twitter that he had tested positive for COVID. And, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's made its rounds around the team. He's not the only coach with it. Uh, there's others. But it's, it's just one of those things where I think Scott Strickland probably had the quote that summed it up. I mean, this thing, you still have to be diligent because this thing can sneak up on you in a hurry. And the Gators uh, saw that. And right now they're really trying to trace the origins of it. Uh, did it start on the Texas A&M trip? That's where most people inside the, uh, the organization feel that that trip and just being in close quarters like that, that sparked this outbreak. Uh, so they're, they're really working to trace that now, and uh, it's been a it's been an unusual week, Adam. Hmm. In terms of being shut down, I mean, tangibly, what does that mean? Obviously, you're still in the middle of a season. Um, what does it mean for players and coaches when they're operating on, under that banner? Well, they're still doing some of the things they've done throughout the the uh, pandemic. You know, they can still have Zoom meetings. Uh, they're still scouting and those kind of things. And they, so, not everybody on the team is covid positive or have symptoms so you know some of these guys certainly i'm sure can do things on their own but as a unit as a group they're shut down uh, dan mullen said today that you know it's, i think his direct quote it's pretty quiet around the team right now i mean there's guys working uh, a lot of guys quarantine working at home so it, it's very disruptive what what they're experiencing right now and then you're going to see a team best case scenario that plays missouri on october 31st i mean it will have been what, three weeks since a game. They will have two weeks where they were shut down. So it's going to be very interesting what kind of team we see 
if that game comes to fruition, like get back out there on the field because, you know, it, we've talked a lot about on our other podcasts about how unusual this season's already been with the defenses kind of behind the offenses and, mm. and it taking time for these guys to get in game mode, uh, to get acclimated with tackling and things that, of that nature that when you take a layoff that impacts your ability. Well, here they are, right? About the time they're starting to warm up, they get shut down again. So it it's just uh, it just adds a, another wrinkle that we've never seen, Adam, in uh, the 2020 season. We'll be talking about this for a long time. You know, it's interesting, too, the way the SEC set up the schedule, you had obviously one bye week that you'd normally have for Florida. That was the 31st leading into Georgia, which is always the case. Then they built in that extra bye week at the end of the season to potentially make up games, which, of course, will now be occupied by Florida LSU. And then the bye week on the 31st is be taken up by Missouri. That affected other schedules as well. Georgia moved around. I mean, the SEC obviously knew this was a possibility, but we're seeing now, you know, three, four weeks in, all of those gears are already moving. And a lot of these changes that were kind of the, if necessary, last resorts, those are already happening. So it's still, despite all the planning by the SEC, it's still a tough spot, especially if there's any more issues going forward. Sure. I think everything is kind of fluid ever what word you want to use I you got to give the SEC some credit for their foresight you know they waited uh on developing a schedule then they came up with the league schedule they implemented the uh, the bye week during the season you're right those things have already been exhausted to some degree uh, across the league and and what does that mean going forward if this isn't going away which uh, it doesn't appear to be who knows I, I don't know maybe it ends up being Scott Strickland was asked, uh, could you envision a game being played midweek, like on a Tuesday or Wednesday? He said, hey, it's 2020. I'm not ruling anything out. So, you know, there's a lot on the table, I think, in terms of what we still might see. Uh, Right now, what the league's hoping is that they can get Florida back on schedule, get Vanderbilt back on schedule, and have these games come off and use that bye week. And is is it optimal for the Georgia Florida matchup? You know, they like that those off weeks before that game. No, that's going to change some dynamics there. But guess what? Uh, At this point, I think if they get the game off and uh, they don't miss any more games through the season, uh, I think at this point, uh, ADs around the league, football coaches would gladly take that proposition. We got to get Scott back on schedule too because uh, he's in quarantine right now. Right, Scott? I am. Yes, I'm like, uh, you know, I was on that team plane like so many others at UAA. So – we, we landed back here in Gainesville on Saturday night, the, what was that, October 10th? So you get, we're doing the CDC protocol. Uh, you know, we've all had testing with the players, the coaches. We do it the same way they do. Uh, we were quarantined from our offices uh, for at least 10 days, and, and we're going to stay throughout this week as they try to get a hold on it and still continue to test daily. Uh, I've had, like, my in my case, I've had, like, five in a negative in a row. Wow. So – I'll take a couple of days, and then I start, I start to again on Thursday, and we have to all do it this coming weekend before Monday. You have to do it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Everyone has to be kind of cleared with negatives, I think, to be able to come back on the 26th, which is what they're hoping. So it's impacted a lot of people. I mean, it's impacted, uh, you know, players, coaches, ADs. I mean, Scott Strickland's had COVID, obviously, over the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been fortunate not to get it, but uh, hopefully they get a hold of this, and I will credit. I wrote a little something the other day, just kind of, I want to shine a spotlight on the medical people, because I do, I've seen it up close, and, you know, there's all kinds of debate out there, whether you should be playing college football, whether you should be doing this or that, and, you know, I think they've handled everything really well. Not once in this whole process have I ever felt like my health was being compromised or anything by, you know, the SEC and the NCAA and college football trying to play. But it, it's always been from day one. There could be moments like this. And sure enough, we've experienced it. And now we're dealing with it. So, you know, there's a lot going on with football trying to get started back up. Meanwhile, basketball is just starting, Chris. And I guess, you know, as someone who's entrenched in there, you're seeing it from both a normal getting ready for the season standpoint and also modified because of these times that we're in. So um, tell us what's going on with basketball as they start practice and, and try to stay as safe as possible within this odd world that we're living in. 
Well, uh, the, the Florida basketball team has had some, you know, COVID challenges too relative to you know, contact tracing and stuff like that. And they've been down in numbers, some practices or guys had to sit out. But the first official um, practice uh, was, I believe, the 14th of October, a week ago, uh, Wednesday. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's obviously a diff, a different looking team. Um, you, you take the two guys that occupied the ball the most a year ago in Andrew Nemhard and Kerry Blackshear, they're both gone. Um, and what, Flo- what Florida has done and, uh, what Mike White told his team, uh, early on in the uh, zoom meetings in the off season was they were going to revamp how they play and they're going to play faster. They're going to try to play the way he played at La Tech, which is a little more of a 94-foot brand of basketball um, that entails, you know, uh, a lot less structure, maybe more of a playground kind of look to it if you want to just go by what what a layman might think. But it's um, fewer uh, sets. It's more you're grabbing a rebound, and instead of turning around and looking the ball to hand the ball to Andrew Nemhard, you know, there's four or five guys that have freedom now to grab a rebound and go. And that's going to be maybe something that, that, that fans are going to enjoy a little bit more, but it's certainly going to be something that um, the players, I think, are going to enjoy a little bit more. Uh, that's, this isn't to blow up um, Andrew or, or Kerry Blackshear in any way. I mean, those guys are really, really good basketball players. Andrew Nemhard uh, left here as the fourth all-time uh, leading assist guy playing just two years. And if he uh, gets his incident eligibility at Gonzaga this year after transferring, he's got a chance to start on a, like a top 10 basketball team out there. So um, Kerry Blackshear was a guy this time last year, people were at Florida number six in the country. And we're talking about a fashionable kind of pick to be final four. Uh, those expectations did not play well with that group of guys. They had a really good recruiting class, obviously freshman Scotty Lewis, Trey Mann uh, coming in, Omar Payne coming in. Uh, this guy's hadn't experienced college basketball anymore. I don't know what their uh, their own personal expectations were probably a little out of line on what they thought they might be able to accomplish in their first year. Certainly, you look at their stat line. Scotty Lewis pretty pretty good last year, certainly better late in the year than he was early on in the year. Mm-hmm. Pretty consistent as a defensive player, became more of a rebound and more of a score late in the year, shot much better than anyone thought. Trey Mann did not have a good season last year. Those guys are back, and they have context terms of what to expect from themselves in terms of speed of the game, um, size of the game, uh, and hopefully they can they can use that to talk to uh, to some of the guys this year that are going to be expected to have impacts right away. There's three players on this team, Adam, that are transfers that are going to be playing uh, this season. Uh, two of them sat out last year, Anthony Derugi from Louisiana Tech, a more like a, a wing kind of 3-4 kind of guy, real – Really, really athletic. He was a, uh, a national uh, elite track triple jumper back in the day. Could have, could have pursued that in college easily. Um, Tyree Appleby is a guy who transferred from Cleveland State where he averaged almost 18 points a game. Once had a, he, only has, he has the only triple double in the history of that school. He's a guy who can, who can score, can play really fast. And Colin Castleton, we talked about him maybe – I'm sure we talked about him in COVID, but hell, it's been you know, how many <laughs> how many podcasts ago was that? Nearly seven foot transfer from Michigan. Um, he's really been a surprise, uh, not only in how he plays on the court, but how he works, uh, stays after beforehand. And I was talking to Al Pinkins, who coaches a big man yesterday. Colin Cass and Omar Payne are in a, a battle right now to be the starting five man. So um, look across the board with this team. Um, it's going to have a different look about it uh, without Andrew Nemhard running up the ball. There, who's going to be the point guard right now? It could be Trey Mann right now. It could be uh, Tyree Appleby. I think Trey Mann has the, is the leader in the clubhouse on that for now. Quez Glover is a guy who's gotten better from last season. Um, I think fans will be, or certainly will be excited to hear that, you know, are going to be more of an up and down affair as opposed to a lot of standing around and that standing around led to a lot of offensive possessions. I want to say, offensive possessions that didn't really get into a flow until maybe uh, 10 to 15 seconds into a possession. And that led to Florida being one of the uh, slowest tempo playing teams in the country last season. Yeah, it's interesting. You're talking about last year and and Florida not living up to the expectations. When you think about that season, and I I immediately go to, wait, what happened in the tournament? Oh, wait, there was no tournament. Mm -hmm. Is there any sense of incompletion or not having closure from that season because 
The NCAA tournament is such an institution, and every team is defined by what they do there. When you don't even have the chance to get to that point, does it almost feel like there's a like an ellipses at the end of the year as opposed to a period? Well, I mean, let's just go back to March 13th, the day that everything really technically shut down. That's the day Scott Strickland called all the coaches in and sent them back to their teams and said, it's over. Um, I talked to Kerry Blackshear as he was walking out of the gym that day. He had, you recall, Florida's last game had been that Kentucky game mm-hmm. up 18 with inside 12 minutes ago and lost at home on his senior day. Yeah. And he had had some kind of di- dislocated his finger and wasn't able to play in the second half. And that allowed Nick Richards to totally um, dominate inside and, and Florida was unable to box out or anything and, and you know, end up losing the game. That's the way their season ended. And they were, they were two hours, excuse me, three hours away from playing Georgia in the, in the second round of the SEC tournament when they got word. But walking out of the basketball building uh, that day, March 13th, talking to Kerry Blackshear, he goes, there'll never be closure on the season. That's the word you use. And that's not just for Florida. That's for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said there was no NCAA tournament. Florida would have been in the NCAA tournament um, for a fourth straight season under Mike White. They have a really good chance to be in it, obviously, again, this season. They're not going to go into the year ranked. They, uh, uh, so those expectations aren't there, but they certainly have internal expectations uh, to be a good team. And once again, I will say this, one thing that always is going to help this program, and it dates to the time not just Billy Donovan was a coach, but Mike Hill was the person making the schedule in the uh, marketing department. Uh, they're going to have a brutal schedule. Uh, Wednesday, the SEC announced the matchups for the, uh, for the SEC Big 12 Challenge. Mm-hmm. The Gators will be going to play out West Virginia. Now, if you go by what's been reported uh, out there in the social media sphere, you got a, a neutral site game against Virginia, the second game of the, of the year. They're going to turn around right away and play at Oklahoma a week later. Mm-hmm. Then they're playing at home against UConn. Then they're going to Florida State. Those are four straight games, and I have a serious, I have serious doubts that any high major team in the country are going to play four straight games like that. Now you roll in a road date to we- at West Virginia. Plus the SEC schedule when you're talking about Kentucky and you're talking about Tennessee being a top 10 team, you're talking about uh, LSU uh, uh, being a top 15 team, uh, Alabama jumping into the fray. Um, This is going to be a a brutal schedule, but at the same time, Florida always gets rewarded uh, at the end of the year uh, for playing such such an elite kind of uh, uh, competitive schedule, especially when you elect to play these games, uh, non-conference kind of games that Florida is going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll be talking more about basketball, obviously, as it gets closer, end of November as opposed to beginning of November, another shift there, uh, scheduling due to COVID. We've had this pause now for a little over a week or so, and, and I know it's given you guys a chance to write some stories that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, Scott, t- tell us a little bit about the story you wrote about some of the Gators that we've lost uh, here recently, because again, it's been so hard to break through the news cycle with so much about COVID, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that, that people should have been paying attention to that may have slipped their mind. Yeah, it's just, it seems like an unfortunate byproduct of COVID. I mean, we've seen so many, I guess, famous athletes die. I think the Baseball Hall of Fame has been hit unbelievable the last few months with Tom Seaver and Joe Morgan and Mm -hmm. some other guys. But anyway, I I just, I've noticed a a few Gator football players in recent months. I get emails here and there and, hey, did you know this guy passed away? And I had those kind of set to the side and I uh, have had some time, obviously, to touch base on guys like Nap Green and Mark Curzo, names that I kind of – I wasn't really that familiar with, but then you dig into the, the library and you realize, look, well, these guys, man, they were they were big time coming into the program like these guys are today. Some careers worked out better than others, uh, but it was just a chance to, to shine a spotlight on those guys because a lot of your older fans remember them. A lot of the younger fans have never heard of them, and uh, it's just part of what we do, but something I enjoy doing because uh, it's, it's, it's inevitable every time you do one of those, Adam, uh, someone, whether it's a former teammate, a family member, you get an email or a text or something thanking you to kind of remember that person. So uh, there's, some, uh, there's a lot to it in that also just to, to know that people out there care. Yeah, go check that story out at FloridaGators.com. Uh, and while you're there, you'll also find a story that Chris did this week about Gator Volleyball and their amended schedule that's ongoing. So too is soccer, by the way, a truncated eight-game SEC season for them. Uh, and Chris, for, for volleyball, I know the, the real 
the crux of your story is the fact that Mary Wise has been in it 30 years now, and yet here's something new. You don't think when you're doing something for 30 years, you're going to have something you've never seen before. But sure enough, here is this new challenge that uh, that everyone's had to deal with, including her. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> just the talk about the just the essence of, of COVID and, you know, volleyball usually starts in late August. Mm. And I imagine they would, I mean, maybe two months into their season already. Um, and probably on, on the way to a 25th SEC championship because they certainly got uh, – I think they got picked second, actually, this year uh, to, to finish second uh, behind Kentucky, who they shared the title with a year ago. Um, but uh, this has uh, uh, been very strange, and, and it's uh, up until this point, and it's about to get stranger because by the time this podcast will have come out, Florida will have opened the, the volleyball season um, Wednesday at Auburn. And then woken up Thursday and reviewed their tape from the match at Auburn and get ready to play Auburn again Thursday night. <laughs> so uh, that's that's just the the what they're going to do with the SEC this year. The SEC is going to give you four back to backs. I guess you could basically what the NBA except except you're playing the same team, uh, four different sets. Uh, I think it's it's Florida. Florida's playing at Auburn. They're home against Alabama. They're home against South, or they're home against South Carolina, and the other, the other uh, uh, team escapes me right now. But it's going to be eight matches, all SEC, all back to back. Then they flip it over in January, and they're going to play more SEC matches, but also sprinkle in some non-conference matches. Hopefully, by then this uh, virus will, or at least maybe the therapeutics for it, or mm-hmm. vaccine for it, or anything, some things will have advanced uh, to put them in better position to to do that, but they don't even have a schedule for, uh, for January yet. So, um, all you can do is prepare for what's at hand and, um, volleyball like football being a, a, a fall sport, uh, was back reported back for practice and for off season training back in June. So they've been doing this COVID, uh, precautionary, um, what do we call it? We call it text something and protect. What is it, Scott? Test, trace and protect. Test, trace, and protect. Yes, sir. They've been doing that since since June. Um, all the sports have that. Have, as soon as they get back, they go right into the uh, into that program. And so they've had to do a lot of stuff on Zoom. Obviously, they've had because it's an indoor sport. They were really um, limited to some things they could do. And like Mary Mary said in a Zoom call last week, volleyball something. It's not like uh, basketball where you go to the gym, you get shots up. You need other people to practice. You need other people to set. You need to because you you got to do a lot more of, of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they finally got around it. It's supposed to be a good team. Uh, Thayer Hall's back on this team. Uh, T.R. Caesar, who was a, a a really really good player at Georgia, sat out last season. She's going to have a huge impact on the team. Dario King is back. This is going to be a good uh, obviously a good volleyball team. Uh, open Auburn uh, Wednesday and Thursday. Well, we're talking about football and, and older Gators, as we did a moment ago. Uh, SEC Network, Scott, has got a, a documentary coming out on Carlos Alvarez. A lot of younger Gators probably don't know about him, but I think as you were able to experience through watching it, it's uh, it's something that could help them learn more about one of the true Gator greats. Yeah, I'll, I'd recommend, you know, it's, a, it's an SEC story profile that's going to be released on Tuesday, uh, October 27th, and... Uh, I was fortunate enough to watch a, a kind of a screening of it. And uh, there's just some great footage in there from the, his UF days from 1969 to 1971. I mean, you got to remember Carlos Alvarez, he was part of that great super softs team in 69 that uh, in Ray Gray's final year uh, put up numbers with quarterback John Reeves that uh, Florida had not seen uh, before in the passing game, even after Steve Spurrier's playing career, they took it to the next level. And you got a lot of people in there talking about it, like Spurrier and uh, obviously Alvarez. But it, it's really more than just football. It's more than the Gators. You, it's a time capsule during that era. And Carlos Alvarez was very outspoken on social justice causes. He was a Cuban-American came over with his family to South Florida after Castro took control of Cuba. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of similarities really that are going on in our world today, 50 years later. And it's just a great snapshot into history. It's a great look at Carlos Alvarez. And it's just, uh, it was very interesting, very well done. I would, 
I would uh, highly recommend it to Gator fans and non-Gator fans. So yeah, we'll be sure to check that out Tuesday night on the SEC Network, and might have to uh, might have to change the focus at that point because people might be locked into the World Series. That may still be going on with the Rays and the Dodgers. It may not. However, what I want to talk about for a PAT relates to that series. It also relates to the NBA Finals that just wrapped up within the last couple weeks, the Stanley Cup as well. We are now awarding lots of championships for the year 2020, many of them much later than expected and under different circumstances than they normally would. So my question to you guys is, do these 2020 championships have asterisks next to them? And if so, do all of them or only some of them based on the way that they chose to play out their season and their postseason? Before I go into this answer, I think we need to go over um, Game Seven of the of the of, of the Braves. Oh, don't uh, don't series. do that to us, Chris. So, don't do that so, to Scott and I, please. Um, I, I just I, I mean that was uh, Scott's a baseball uh, junkie, and that that was a great baseball game, right, Scott? It was a very good game. Great baseball game, but I mean, I just this is I'm not a baseball expert, but just I mean, I think the Braves made some base running mistakes. In, <laughs> Well, it's Chris just has to bury us. It's not. It's not enough that we just, had to lose I mean, again. He's got to bury us. I just know, us. like, like, like. I mean, I've heard all about how great the Braves are, and everybody. I mean, that just seemed like there was some, there were some gaffes in that. Well, you know. You know, speaking to Adam's point, they know that this year is going to be asterisk related, so it's not really that important this <laughs> well, year. The there the team, go. this team is a team built for twenty twenty one and beyond. They'll be a dominant team for a decade or so. Okay. Did you get? Did you know, Adam, that the Braves are the only team in the division that hasn't been in the World Series this century? <laughs> did you know that? That's I mean, funny. I, I, mean, I did. And know that. did you know that, that 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 two of the other teams in the have actually won the World Series? That is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I I yeah. didn't I yeah. didn't know that in the context in which you just presented it. Yeah. But it yeah. It, it does take yeah. when I think about it that actually yeah. that is correct. Yes. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I'm sorry to just kind of, kind of hijack. Maybe, maybe there, we'll just but... get Scott's take on the PAT this week. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Chris, please redeem yourself. Go on. Uh, uh, you know what? I, as, as somebody, I got the asterisk, asterisks thrown at me uh, when the Redskins won Super Bowls in the eighties during the strike shortened year. One year was a nine game season. Uh, I don't think you were born yet. Probably Adam 1982. That is um, correct. <laughs> uh, right, right. In 1987, they won in the within the scab season. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, what it, it ended, what that was that was a testament to the the coach. The same coach won both those odd, oddball circumstances, and I always thought that was a tribute to Joe Gibbs that he was able to do with those teams what he was able to do. I mean, and you have to say, I mean, the, the NBA what they did was was incredible. To, mm-hmm. to have that bubble and not and not ha- and have the have the the no no positives and you know rolling all the other uh, stuff that was going on and and st- they completed a full season also mm-hmm. um, whereas you can't say that about, about I guess the hockey technically did didn't they? yeah um, baseball has not I mean I just you know they're playing baseball games and no there's no fan they're playing basketball games they played hockey games were there no fans in it no no and yeah i think fans would have made a difference in some cases when it comes to home court, home court advantage home field advantage and what have you absolutely but um, would that have made that much of a difference for the lakers or the milwaukee bucks have still have been in the nba I, I don't know but you can't you can't take i mean lebron james and anthony davis were fantastic um, the lightning uh, are, everyone knew they were a great team. They probably, everyone thought they were going to win the thing last year. You know, there, there takes a certain kind of intestinal fortitude and a certain kind of chemistry in a locker room and uh, some magic touch from a coach in those circumstances to pull off uh, and win a championship. So, you know, there'll be people cynics that want to do that. I just, I, I just don't, wouldn't think it would necessarily be fair. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to put asterisks by these things, it's not so much to take away from what these people have accomplished, what these teams have accomplished. I think it's just to denote, you know, how different 2020 was and to mm-hmm. have that constant reminder into the record books. You know, when people look at these records, like I love to still flip through the old baseball encyclopedia once in a while to look up something and, and you'll see one season that just seems off. Like, well, what happened that in 19? 19- 
you know, 41. Uh, oh, yeah, World <laughs> War Two, or, you know, mm-hmm. those years. So I think we'll have to have some kind of reference, you know, in our record books for 2020 because it was so different. But I, I agree with Chris in terms of, you know, what they accomplished is no less significant because they still had to come together. They still had to work. And, you know, baseball as a, as a baseball guy, as a guy who loves its linear history, uh, you know, you're going to look back on a 60 game regular season and the numbers just are going to look so off and you're, it's going to leave a, something to be desired. But yet watching these games with the Rays and Dodgers in the postseason, I've gotten into them just as much as I would have if there were 50,000 people there and they played 162 games because I, I know what's at stake and I feel like the teams that should be there are there mm-hmm. and that helps some too. So, you know, everybody will have their opinion on it, but I think the most important thing we could say about 2020 in sports is that they found a way to play at a time when I think <laughs> I think we really needed it. Absolutely. Yeah, we'd still be talking about the last dance for God's sake. <laughs> yes, yes. But, I mean, you, I mentioned about the home – home court advantage. I mean, I think an example of that would the Miami heat have been in the NBA finals? Maybe not. Yeah. Um, but, but that just makes, I think that speaks to what they were able, the chemistry they were able to engender in, the, in those circumstances uh, down in Orlando. Uh, and, and that starts with Eric Spolstra and nobody, nobody doubts that that guy's not a great coach. People thought before, Oh, you won championships when you went and won LeBron, anybody who said that, but the people who know Eric Spolstra, who, who, who know basketball and know he's a really good coach. I think that was a great example of demonstrating that to a different audience in different circumstances. To, to Scott's point, I think the asterisk is mostly about recognizing history when you look back on it and seeing why the year was different. But I, I think, and you guys tell me if this is fair, that it applies more to, say, baseball because they drastically cut the regular season they changed the rules of the game to fit that season and then they changed the entire structure of the playoffs as well to me and I'm not just saying this because the Braves lost and they don't have the chance to have the asterisk next to World Series champions to me that's a little bit different than the NBA and the NHL which still played out their seasons and played out the playoffs under normal operating standards as opposed to retrofitting the whole system to match this time. So I think you you still have an asterisk maybe for that, but with baseball, I think it's it's a lot different with baseball. But also to Scott's point, didn't the two teams in baseball with the best record, aren't they playing in the World Series? Yes. Uh, best teams best, from each. But best record yeah. over a 60-game season where they got rid of the DH, they only let relievers throw a few, you know, they, they did fundamentally change the rules. Second, second bit, starting uh, extra right, innings exactly. to the guy on second. Exactly, yeah, yeah. so your score, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. so the offensive numbers are skewed. I mean, everything is different. So is that fair to say that it's a little bit different for baseball than it is for, for basketball and hockey? Yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, you're right. I, I, to, to that point, yes. Um, that's a better asterisk uh, um, circumstance than, say, Slapping one on Roger Maris just because right. you're the commissioner and you didn't want to you didn't want him passing Babe Ruth uh, and then like ruining like the guy's life mm. <laughs> like like Ford Freaky did. Um, uh, but uh, sixty game schedule uh, obviously some of the great pennant races uh, play out and a lot a lot happens after sixty games mm-hmm. um, and. That didn't happen, and one of the one of the magics of baseball is is the longevity and the and 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 being able to persevere and, and make big turnarounds and what have you. We didn't see that, but at the same time, like Scott said, and we had baseball. You know, we could easily not have baseball, and they weren't going to keep playing it on until uh, on until December. I I would like to think that there's going to be regular uh, spring training mm-hmm. uh, kind of timelines in you know come February and March, but who knows, right? That's the one thing. The one thing we have learned is who knows. Just be ready for anything. Uh, well, obviously, no football for the Gators this weekend, so the guys won't be talking about that. But a lot of football being played around the SEC. The Big Ten returns as well, and there will be nonstop content coming on FloridaGators.com about all the things we've talked about here today and much more. So uh, check these guys out online, especially on Twitter at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. And uh, gentlemen, hopefully next week we will be talking about Florida, Missouri, and uh, look forward to doing it with you then. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. 
Earlier this summer, we had the chance to speak to Chris Leak about his journey from true freshman starter to national championship winning senior in the early 2000s, most of which was included in our Gator Great series Trail to Glendale. But we were also able to talk to him about much more, including his early years in the game and where he went after leaving Gainesville. I'm the youngest of five children. Wow. Uh, I have three sisters and obviously my old, my my older brother, who's also was in football. My dad, who started us on the football journey, played in the NFL, um, You know, got drafted by the Packers, I believe, back in 76, if I'm thinking correctly. And, uh, you know, didn't force football on us at a young age. We just he just started uh, my brother and my brother was actually my dad played receiver. So my brother was actually going to go out and play Pop Warner football, which was big back in Carolina. And he was going to play receiver, but they didn't have a quarterback on the team, a kid that could really throw the ball. My brother was the the best option. And um, one thing led to another. And my brother, that's how my brother's kind of career quarterback career started was in was in Pop Warner and just uh, from out of necessity, which is kind of weird. But, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I was I just emulated my, a lot of what my brother did. And I copied him as being a younger brother. And I used to go to the football games, I actually started out being a mascot, <laughs> um, you know, for my brother's uh, for my brother's team. And um, my dad actually created created a league for us because he because, you know, Pop Warner had the weight requirements that you have for young kids, for young youth kids where you couldn't play. Uh, if you were a certain weight. So he, he actually founded a league called the CYFL, which is stood for the Carolina Youth Football League. Huh. And uh, it allowed teams around the around the uh, Charlotte area for kids who were may have been not able to play in Pop Warner to come and, you know, have their age, play in their age division, those things. So my dad created that in, in 89, and it went all the way until – until I was 13 years old, which was um, 90, I want to say 98. So he did it for a while. And um, it was really an investment for, obviously, my dad loved to develop kids and coach football. and uh, But it was, it was also for me and my brother's development and our development as a quarterback. Because um, my dad was our, was our football coach. It was much like um, Earl Woods was to Tiger mm. or uh, Serena Williams, Venus Williams' father. Mm-hmm. Um, was for them. I mean, we were around our dad a lot and all day, every day. And we talk about football. You know, we think about football. We eat, eat breathe, sleep football. And went to, went to about eight camps a year, eight summer camps a year, college camps. And oh. so football was a huge part of our life and, and throughout just through our daily walk, especially obviously in the fall and the summer, mm-hmm. as they usually are for most kids nowadays. Um, but, you know, it was something that we loved to do. And we grew, both grew a love for a love for it and a love for the, the 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 functional intelligence, what they call about the game, which is, you know, we talked about drop mechanics, coverages. You know, we watch every every youth game uh, that I can remember from eight years old till 13 was filmed. My dad had it filmed. So I'm going back when I'm, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old and I'm and we're talking about we're studying film. We're talking about coverages and you know, fundamentals. And that's, that's how I was able to grow and, you know, shave the learning curve uh, that so many kids are able to do today now through many different avenues of film Mm -hmm. to where you can back then it was VHS, as we know. (laughs) You're doing like tape (laughs) to tape editing. (laughs) Yeah. Tape to tape. So yeah, those, uh, so those, those tapes still exist, but (laughs) I think my dad is still trying to, he's still trying to put them on DVD, but it's, uh, but it was interesting the way we we were, my dad was kind of, kind of ahead of his time as far as the development of a quarterback. And uh, we were very, me and my brother were very fortunate. So my brother ended up being at the end of high school. Uh, well, we both went to Independence High School in Charlotte. And my brother ended up being the number one dual threat quarterback in the country. He came out and myself was the number one quarterback uh, by depending on who you talk to after my senior year. So it was, so it, it was a process that um now that I look back at it yeah it was, it was definitely ahead of our time and we had a lot of help with coaches going to different college camps um we traveled to NFL training camps um obviously the Carolina Panthers weren't in Charlotte uh, our entire uh childhood so we would we would go to watch the Atlanta Falcons training mm-hmm. camp uh, at times and uh, once the Panthers came in uh, my dad became a season ticket holder. We would go to all the games and you no, know, we would go, we would get to the games early because one of the most important things my dad wanted us to watch is how the quarterbacks prepared for a game. So we would go out and watch 
at the time it was Kerry Collins who was the uh, you know from Penn State and you know he was a highly talented quarterback you know that the Panthers drafted back then so we used to go out and watch him warm up go you know if they're playing the Packers we'd go watch Brett Favre you know with the other teams so it was it was a really the whole development process for us was really was really fortunate that we got to you know see see these things and just have exposure to all these uh, different avenues of, of learning. And it helped, it definitely helped me tremendously help learning from my brother, obviously having the tutelage under my dad uh, growing up, it really helped me grow into the quarterback that I was able to become. You said earlier you were, you were the mascot for at least a, for a, a day for your brother's team. What, what was the mascot? Uh, it was just me in the uniform. Um, my, we the team we were all NFL teams, and oh, okay. uh, my dad my dad played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers toward the end of his career. Actually, when Steve Spurrier was a quarterback there, and um, he had a short stint, but he really he really loved his time in Tampa. So we chose us to be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and you know that's I, it was a it was the what they call creamsicle uniforms, right. which I which, right. which I still love today. And um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. I I had a helmet that was too big for me. Um, <laughs> You know, so I, but I would run out, you know, in front of everybody, my jersey with, you know, my jersey. I was probably like six or seven years old. But, uh, yeah, I got to be the mascot, hold the flag, carry the flag and all those. It was it was pretty fun for me. I didn't know if you were doing like, you know, full on like, uh, you know, Philly fanatic type mascot or what. So <laughs> I, I wasn't sure how serious this was back then. Um, I think my dad wanted me to feel like I was a part of the team. So he put a he put me in a full uniform and, you know, just let me kind of carry the flag in front of everybody. So it was fun for me because, <laughs> you know, I was always I was I've always around football, you know, around players. And even though I wasn't playing, I got to, you know, be in the huddle and hear things and uh, be on the sideline and cheer and those type of things. So I so I became a fan of football um, from a young age, you know, just from just from an observation standpoint. So. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about the recruiting process and why Florida ultimately stood out above all the rest? I think it was uh, Ron Zook, and I had, I had a wonderful recruiting process. My, my parents um, did a wonderful job of organizing it for me because it, it, it was hectic, and my parents had to go through it twice. So I kind of was very fortunate that I got to see it um, my brother go through it where, you know, where Nick Saban's coming in your living room um, and, you know, Bobby Bowden and, you know, all these coaches, uh, Joe Paterno, you know, uh, all these all these great coaches that um, you see coming through. And, you know, I, I'm a little kid. I, don't, I haven't yet grasped of the importance of these meetings yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, but to be able to go through and observe it and just be sit down in the room and, you know, hear the uh, the conversations, it really helped me. Um, the second time around when I had to go through it. And my parents um, did an unbelievable job of keeping focused on the right things. Obviously, our schoolwork, our season, which mattered the most, uh, but uh, how to handle the process of the rec- of the recruiting. Because uh, my second go around uh, was a lot easier. It was a lot smoother process. And, uh, you know, having to install an entire new phone line to, you know, to take all the calls that sometimes went went past midnight with head coaches and coordinators and, you know, those type of things. So it, it, it was, and it's a hectic process. I think it's more hectic for parents than it is players, um, especially when it's, when it's uh, organized pretty well, but it's, uh, but at the end of the day, my process came down to my decision came down to who I trust the most and who, which coach was going to show me a plan to develop me uh, during my four year career. And that, that ended up being Ron Zook, who I ended up building a great relationship with. Um, had a great time on my official visit and uh, of understanding, learning offense from Ed Zombrecker, um, Coach Zook, and I got to spend a lot of time with Rex Grossman uh, at the time. And um, just to see him go through uh, the develop his development process and uh, the game planning, the offense was fit for me, you know, as a passing as a passing quarterback and. Uh, so I saw I fell in love with the with the Gators with the orange and blue and had a uh, wonderful visit and at the end of the day it came down to trust and I trusted Ron Zook with my with my uh, future and my development as a quarterback. Well, and he trusted you as well because you started as a true freshman, which doesn't really happen that often. Even today, you don't see it that often in the SEC. Um, how challenging was that? What, what were the toughest parts of starting in the SEC from day one? And was it you know was it tougher than than you expected it to be? You know, I, I still give a lot of credit to uh, Coach Zook and Ed Zombrecker and the process they took me through 
um, up to starting. And um, the margin for error is what you have to learn from high school to college, just like you have to learn from college and NFL, where the margin of error is a lot smaller. And you know, playing in the SEC, going to hostile environments, the I think the main thing that that I loved about Coach Zook's philosophy, and you know, as far as we far offense, Coach Zombreaker, even Larry Fedora, who was my coordinator my uh, sophomore year, was you know the, the functional intelligence that they really focused on, which is pretty much you know the a player's ability to organize and how to like isolate different tasks. And really, they helped me do that where, you know, you're going into these hostile environments, these stressy, stressful environments. But I was able to they gave me a plan to where I could organize everything. I could go step by step when we broke the huddle or when we lined up. And because we were no huddle at the time, which I loved, which mm-hmm. I loved going fast. It kept things very vanilla for me uh, defensively. So it simplified everything for me. And it, it, but it was it's no it's, it's no easy, easy task. Um week in and week out being being an SEC quarterback period but yeah doing it as a freshman having those um those reps and playing well uh, in those games we had a really good stretch in October where we beat a we beat a couple top 25 teams like Arkansas Georgia LSU and it was it was a wonderful experience for me great year and um I was it got me really prepared for the the, the success we had off offensively uh into our into my sophomore year hmm. I want to say, I think that the Swindle in the Swamp was maybe the first game I ever went to. So I still think about it. Do those things pop up at any time before? Do you ever remember, like, gosh, I can't believe that happened the way that it did? Yeah, well, you know, you, you try to, one of the things that Coach Zook used to always talk about was, you know, being controlling the things that you can control. And that, that was my focus is, you know, when I'm, I'm not on special teams, you know, I'm not on defense. So my focus was always, what can I do to, help us offensively what can I do to help the defense from an offensive standpoint special teams from an offensive standpoint so um but as as everybody knows it was a it was a different game because it's it's you know there were a lot of yellow there was a lot of yellow on that field at that that day (laughs) a lot of yellow and no instant replay (laughs) yeah no instant replay so yeah so you know it's a different time uh and maybe if we had an instant replay um back then you know things would have been different but you know Things are what they are. We had plenty of opportunities to win that game, and you know it, that's just how sometimes how the how the game how the game ends up. But um, I, I think offensively, defensively, special teams wise, we played well enough to win. And you know sometimes sometimes that 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 type of scenario happens, and you know that's why I was at the end of the game. Um, although there were players that were very, very upset at everything, but the, at, at the end of the day, we played well enough to win, which is just, just an unfortunate thing where, you know, sometimes the ball, sometimes you just don't get the calls at like, or the or the game hasn't evolved such as you said with instant replay. Um, cause I think that the game probably would have been very different. Mm-hmm. Um, two more questions for you. Uh, post-college, you know, you go on to play in Canada, you play in the arena league, uh, what were those experiences like? What do you remember about your your professional career after you left Florida? Oh, I think the uh, the biggest thing is is I got to visit a lot of a lot of wonderful places in the cities. Even going up to uh, without football, I would have never been able to to visit another country um, and and play football in that country. Being in the CFL, and but the most important thing was the relationships I had. I have, I have had some unbelievable coaches throughout my career, all the way from where I started in Chicago with Lovey Smith, um, when I was with Kansas City with uh, Herm Edwards, uh, Mark Trustman when I went up to play up in Canada, who who has been through uh, all the <laughs> all the different leagues. They many many years in the NFL where he's coached MVP guys like Rich Gannis, coach Jerry Rice. Um, he started out in San Francisco. He was in the you know with Steve Young winning those Super Bowls. Um, so yeah, I, I had a great relationship with him up in Canada, where I learned a lot about the quarterback position and being able to how to handle uh, all the things that it took to be a professional quarterback. Um, but I tell you what, it was to be able to play as long as I did, and to to come out healthy, you know, and being able to uh, you know do everything that that I do today, which is which is uh, my quarterback academy, where I'm helping quarterbacks develop and er- everything from drop mechanics to reading coverages, all the things that I had the opportunity to do and learn. Um, it was very it's very special to me. Um, 
So, yeah, so my, I, I believe that I have I had a very unique um, road throughout my football career. And um, now I'm using that to help others. And it's, uh, it's, it's a really, it's a really fortunate. I feel really blessed to be able to do it. Final thing for you, you know, seeing what Coach Mullen has done with the program and recognizing, you know, the principles that were established during your career that are now coming back under this coaching staff. What does it mean to you to, to see the Orange and Blue get back toward that level that, that you helped establish? I think just having the familiarity um, for me personally with Coach Mullen and you know all the hours and uh, that we spent together as a as coach and player, um, to have that familiarity and to see that that mindset come back and that 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 uh and what Coach Mullen was, has been able to learn throughout his 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 career at Mississippi State and and uh, now as the head coach of of our Florida Gators. It's a, it's a one, it's wonderful to see that, that the Gators having success under that, under the, a familiar face like coach Mullen. It's, it really is. Uh, and how he has evolved um, as a coach, how he has, uh, how he continues to evolve and improve himself, the coaching staff, the players, the players, their development, um, the former players um, coming around the facilities and the new facility that's that's going to be going up in a in a, in a few in a few years. It's uh, it's great. It's it's like uh, th- you always want to leave a place better than where than where you left it. And uh, we definitely as for as a former player as an alumni, we feel definitely feel that way about the uh, the Florida Gators. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing all these stories with Gator Nation, and uh, good luck with your quarterback academy and and building the next Chris Leak in the future. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. As the Orange and Blue continue their efforts to stay safe, we encourage you to do the same. So until next week, I'm Adam Schick. Take care and go Gators. Gators.